In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Betches Media presents Donald Trump with a, a stain on our country. I am someone's daughter, too. That's what I'm doing. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. The Betches Sup Podcast. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Hello, everybody. It is Amanda, and we have a huge episode for you today. First, I spoke with Dr. Yara Hawari. She is a academic and a journalist living in Palestine, and she's a senior analyst of Al Shabaka, uh, the Palestinian Policy Network. We had a long conversation about what she is experiencing and how this fits into the broader context of the conflict and the occupation. We know we have a lot of different listeners with a lot of different personal connections to this conflict, and I understand that this interview could be challenging for some of you to hear, um, but we think it's really important to spotlight a number of different voices, and we'll be doing so throughout the week and into next week and into the next weeks. This is in line with the subjects that we're prioritizing this year. So that interview is about 30 minutes, and at that point, we'll come back to our normal Wednesday conversation. So this is me speaking with Dr. Yar Hawari today on Wednesday. Hello, everyone. I'm back today with Dr. Yara Hawari. She is the senior analyst of Al Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network, which is an independent think tank. She also completed her PhD in Middle East politics at the University of Exeter, and she's a frequent political commenter, writing for various media outlets. They include The Guardian, Foreign Policy, Al Jazeera English. I saw you on uh, CBS yesterday. You have been so generous with your time and your experiences long before this week. So thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start really broadly. Our listeners are familiar. We've been talking about what's been going on, but obviously not with a person in the region and somebody with such expertise about the history of this region, just personally, academically. So just to start off, I know you're getting asked this question a lot, but I want to make sure we're asking Palestinians this, these questions every day. Can you tell us where you are right now? What's going on around you in this moment? We're speaking at about 6 p.m., Palestine time on Wednesday, May 19th. So I, I live in Palestine, which at the moment is amidst this popular uprising. Literally um, everywhere there's been continuous protests against the, the Israeli regime, which has been colonizing us for, for over seven decades now. Uh, and these protests have been met um, by the Israeli army and the Israeli police with a, a huge amount of violence and, and repression. Um, but I think perhaps the, the violence has been most pronounced in Gaza, where the Israeli army has been uh, bombarding um, uh, Gaza for, for about a week and a half now, which um, has left uh, well over 200 Palestinians uh, dead, uh, including at least, I think, 60 children. And they have bombed residential uh, apartment buildings. They've bombed media towers. They've bombed uh, infrastructure, including a lot of roads. Um, and yesterday, uh, I saw that they bombed the, the biggest bookshop in Gaza. Um, and they bombed also the only COVID testing clinic in Gaza. 
um, and, and you know, not only have hundreds of people been killed, fifty thousand people have also been displaced, um, and they're homeless, and many of them are sheltering in in schools, which themselves have been damaged by airstrikes. Now, all of this, of course, is going on amidst a pandemic where the majority of the Palestinian population has not been vaccinated. Um, and, and of course, in Gaza, you know, this is 10 times worse with the, the situation of the, the health capabilities and the infrastructure. So it's an it's a incredibly difficult time. Um, it's always an incredibly difficult yeah. time to be a Palestinian, but it's, it's, even, more, um, it's even more challenging now. Um, and being Palestinian is such a, an emotional roller coaster because we have this uh, awful devastation around us, but there are also, you know, these small pockets of hope, uh, such as the sort of mass unified mobilization, um, which is incredible um, and something that has, is definitely unprecedented for my generation. Has that surprised you, seeing this reaction to this particular escalation? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's something that's important for for listeners to be aware of is that pa- the Palestinian people have been fragmented in various different geographies in the in the West Bank and Gaza in in forty eight, which is what we refer to the Palestinian um, citizens of Israel, uh, but also those in exile. And not only geographically, they've fragmented us politically and socially in such a way that um, this kind of mobilization has been incredibly difficult to organize or even to imagine in the past. And so this has been um, incredibly uh, inspiring um, amidst all the devastation to see um, uh, and really cements the fact that, you know, even though they've tried for so many decades, they, they haven't succeeded in our, in our total fragmentation. The fact that there are Palestinians protesting in Haifa um, and in Jaffa with Palestinian flags and going on strike in, in solidarity with their brothers and sisters across the Green Line and in Gaza. I mean, that, that is just testament to, to our survival as, a, as an indigenous Palestinian people. And there are about, there are over 7 million Palestinians around the world, correct? Got it. No, double it. Double it. Wow. Okay. So the numbers I've seen are not so, so the seven million refers to um, in the actual land of of hi- historic colonized Palestine. Okay. So we're talking, um, and these are very rough figures and rounded up. But we're talking three million in in the West Bank, two million in Gaza, two million in right, and then an additional Gaza. seven million refugees. Got it. And then seven million refugees. So we're talking fourteen million uh, Palestinians uh, worldwide. Wow. You mentioned going on strike. So you and other Palestinians in your area were on strike yesterday. What was the purpose of that strike? Um, so the, the the general strike yesterday, um, uh, Tuesday, May 18th, um, was organized across colonized Palestine, uh, and it coincided also with a global call to action. It was actually launched uh, from Jerusalem, and then it extended to every Palestinian village, city, uh, refugee camps across Palestine, um, our borders with Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan, uh, and this and the call was part of maintaining this uh, this moment of unprecedented popular resistance against the Israeli settler colonial regime, um, and, and it was to show that the Palestinian people are one people in the West Bank, Gaza, forty eight, um, and in exile. 
But I think it was also important to show ourselves that we could and we can mobilize in this way. Um, and in particular, the strike was actually very important for the Palestinian citizens of Israel who are two million, um, who make up two million of the, the nine million population of Israel. They, they represent quite a large part of the, the workforce, the professional workforce. Um, just to give you an example, 21% of the doctors in, in Israel are Palestinian. Uh, 24% of the nurses in Israel are Palestinian citizens. Uh, 50% of the pharmacists are Palestinian citizens. Um, and also construction workers in Israel are either Palestinian citizens of Israel or Palestinians from the West Bank. And so yesterday, the Israeli construction industry was entirely shut down. Um, and, and really what this strike um, uh, demonstrated is that we have the capability to paralyze the, the Israeli economy by simply refusing to show up to work. Um, and that's obviously, that's um, a really powerful uh, thing to have in your hands. And obviously there's, there's a long history of strike action being successful. So there are, you know, there, are there were multiple reasons for the strike. And I think it was successful in, in, in more ways than one. Yeah, absolutely. So the plight and the abuse and mistreatment of Palestinians, it gets a lot of attention during active attacks like now and in 2014. The fatalities alone are hard to comprehend. Like you said, it's 200 people, including 60 children. In 2014, it was 2,200 people, including nearly 600 children. Those are hard to comprehend. But these bombings, they beyond that, they devastate entire communities, even beyond the fatalities. They cause life-changing injuries. There's thousands injured. They destroy businesses, like you said, a major bookshop. You live there. So I was wondering if you could sort of elaborate on how, how do these regular periods of extreme violence impact Palestine's ability to, I had written thrive, but I think more accurately to simply live and provide for their families and even think about having the opportunity to follow dreams like much of us do. Yeah. And it's important to clarify that, you know, I don't live in Gaza and obviously right. the, the situation in Gaza is just, um, uh, a million times worse in terms of uh, the, the 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 fatalities, the damage to infrastructure. You know, as you said, um, it's not just the fatalities. There are so many injuries. You know, people in Gaza, um, many people in Gaza don't have limbs, uh, and many have lost their eyes. And this is in a context where you know medical capabilities are really low. But there's also you know trauma. Most children in Gaza are traumatized, and that's not an exaggeration. There was a statistic I read the other day that 85% children are suffering from trauma. Um, and, and that's not surprising, considering that since 2008, there have been four major wars in Gaza. So, you know, this means that really young children have only ever known war. Um, and the aim, I think, of the Israeli regime has become very clear in the case of Gaza. It's not only to uh, to, to kill a few hundred every now and then, but it's also to destroy their lives in any way possible. You know, Gaza was already functioning on only a few hours of electricity a day. It was already deemed yeah. unlivable by the UN. And then the pandemic absolutely ravaged Gaza. And now we have this. But beyond Gaza, you know, the Israeli regime infiltrates you know, really intimate aspects of, of life. Um, for the, in the West Bank, they really have maintained uh, such a control over, over Palestinians uh, um, in a way that's incredibly intimate, down to them even thinking about who they marry because the ID system is so 
so complicated and intricate, sometimes it even prevents them marrying who they want, which Palestinians they want to marry. Um, so it's that invasive uh, and it's, it's part of a policy to, to, you know, make us leave. They want us to leave. Yeah, I mean, when you just mentioned, you know, having control over who people are in relationships with, it, it, it's not surprising why the words apartheid are invoked to describe this. Can you speak a little bit more of what people experience there and how their rights and movements are, are restricted yeah. and why, you know, in areas like the West Bank are referred to as an open air prison? Yeah, I mean, so the West Bank has been under military occupation since 1967. Uh, and what this means is that it has been under total Israeli military control uh, since then. Uh, Palest- Palestine, uh, or the, the areas in which Palestinians live, there is they have no sovereign borders, and a lot of people don't realize that. And so what that actually means is that for Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, if they want to leave, they have to ask uh, or they have to apply for Israeli permission to do so. Now, in Gaza, it's, it's become totally impossible. Very few people actually are able to leave. And in the West Bank, it's, uh, um, it's, it's, it's also difficult. You have to uh, uh, apply for that, for, for that permission. And if they decide that you are politically active in any way, they can deny you that permission. Um, and even the Palestinian Authority president himself has to actually ask permission to leave the city in which he lives. So the control of movement is so total. And the, and the situation in the West Bank now, it's, it's not this one contiguous piece of land. It's more like a series of Palestinian bantustans that are totally surrounded by um, Israeli uh, army military infrastructure or Israeli illegal settlements. And so to travel from one place to another, you have to you almost certainly will pass through a a military outpost or a checkpoint. And so these can be arbitrarily closed at any time. So life is just uncertain. It's all, there is never a guarantee that you'll get from point A to point B. And, and, and they funnel Palestinians onto these tiny roads. And so everyone is traveling on the same road and, and, It sounds a bit banal in context of what we're talking about, but the traffic is so intense that that was also another uh, factor of it is that they want to make life unbearably difficult. So Palestinians don't move. They stay in their banter stance. Um, uh, And uh, and aside from that, you know, there's I mean, there's (laughs) there's so much to talk about when it comes to the Israeli (laughs) military occupation of the West Bank. But I think it's also important here to talk about the Palestinian citizens of Israel, who many assume are citizens and therefore perhaps maybe a little bit discriminated against, but more or less are equal. But that's not the case at all. And and what's obscured from uh, from a lot of discussions is that their the policies in within Israel are very similar to the policies in the West Bank vis-a-vis the Palestinians. So if we look at what Palestinian communities look like in Israel, they too are essentially bantustans or ghettos that are surrounded by um, Israeli settlement. They're, many of them have had their land stolen. And this is purposely done to prevent uh, them from building out, from expanding. So Palestinians are encased in these tiny, tiny areas. So often they have to build up rather than build out. And then they're not provided with the um, the permission to build. And so Israel will deem their houses illegal uh, or unrecognized. And so they'll go in and demolish houses because they because they don't give the permits to build the houses in the first place. Palestinians have to build. They have to house their families. 
Um, and, and, and this is something that we also see in the West Bank. So these policies towards Palestinians is, um, you know, they, they, they have different characteristics, but they essentially come from under the, the same regime with the same aim to, to push Palestinians in, into the smallest space uh, possible. Got it. Yeah. And, and as we've sort of looked at how this particular escalation originated, we've looked at how specifically in Jerusalem attempts to basically squeeze Palestinians out completely. But as you're saying, that is true across even the already scattered parts that are supposed to be in some vein theirs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jerusalem sees this in an incredibly intense way, as we're seeing with Shushra, because of it being that that city of importance and capital city. Um, and so, unfortunately, Jerusalem does see it in, in, in an incredibly intense and, and, and violent way. But Sheikh Jarrah, the reason that Sheikh Jarrah managed to the neighborhood in, in East Jerusalem, which was facing forced evictions and continues to face forced evictions, the reason that it um, mobilized and inspired so many Palestinians is because so many of us saw in that campaign or in what was happening there, what has happened to us elsewhere. It's not that, that we saw, we stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Sheikh Jarrah. No, we're standing with them because this has happened to us as well. Um, or this has happened to our parents or our grandparents. So there is this continuous process across colonized Palestine. And at different points in history, there are different sort of escalations of the violence. But it is a continuous structure of violence. Right. Yeah. So the, the, the claims I, at the beginning of this that people heard that this is just a real estate dispute that doesn't symbolize anything greater. It could not be farther, could not be farther from the reality. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, I don't, yeah. I mean, it's, it's simply not true, but again, true. Israel's PR machine is very smart as sort of um, putting forward sort of various distraction stories, um, legalities. Um, indeed, you know, Palestinians live under this sort of matrix of an Israeli legal system that they make things seem very complicated of who has what ID, who can live where and do. And, and this is just a smokescreen. It's a smokescreen to, to hide from the fact that there is uh, one sovereign entity that treats two groups of people in very different ways. Um, uh, and they can use that legal language um, to uh, to obscure from that reality. Yeah. In, in this country last summer, we had a real reckoning over police violence. And it seems like police brutality has played a role as well in this recent escalation. But just like we said, this is not rare. Uh, these uses of inappropriate force are used all the time against Palestinian protesters. Is it a common experience for Palestinians protesting even just peacefully outside periods of you know, extreme heightened escalation to face these barriers to just protesting peacefully? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this has this has been the case since the foundation of Israel. Um, you know, across the generations, our, our parents or grandparents share different tactics on how to protect ourselves against uh, brutality. And, you know, as I said, this has been ongoing for seven decades. Uh, any sort of Palestinian uh, expression, um, political expression is often met um, you know, with either, you know, threats of physical violence or actual physical violence or incarceration, detention. Um, there were really um, uh, incredible footage from Jerusalem yesterday, which showed Palestinians um, 
civilian Palestinians protesting at Damascus Gate and they were met with what Israel calls crowd control uh, weapons or crowd control mechanisms. Now, we all know what crowd control mechanisms really are. They're mechanisms to suppress political uh, expression. And you know that in the States just as well as we do. Perhaps we know it slightly more because they exported it to you guys after they <laughs> tested it out on us. And, and, that's, and that's not me being flippant. That's actually true. <laughs> the, the skunk uh, water chemical weapon, which has been garnering a lot of attention in the media because people were referring it to as a, as a water cannon. And then we were explaining that it's not a water cannon. It's actually... Oof, yeah. A chemical weapon, and that's what it is. It's a concoction of chemicals that that smell inc- incredibly rancid, that stay on your skin. Uh, that smell uh, stays on your skin for days. It causes uh, irritation, but it also causes severe retching, um, which for some people means that you can't breathe. Um, uh, and and not only that, it stays uh, on buildings for a long time, and so that's why. Israel uses it as a as a method of collective punishment. It can spray homes. It can spray businesses. If, if a business is sprayed with the skunk uh, water, it will have to close for like wow. several days until that that smell disappears. Um, so you know uh, that one of the recent uh, one of the recent things that they have been using us on us or on Palestinians in the West Bank has been uh, drone uh, this a drone. Uh, armed with tear gas canisters. So they don't even have to get close to us anymore. And it's like they're playing a video game. They fly, they're really at a far distance and they're flying a drone over the head of protesters and they just drop tear gas canisters on them. And of course, tear gas canisters, you know, can be very lethal, especially if they're dropped from that height. Then it's not simply, you know, you end up crying for a few hours and that's it. It's, it they can be very lethal if they're fired directly at protesters. They can cause, you know, huge respiratory issues. But again, these are all classed as crowd control uh, weapons. And it's, if, quite frankly, it's, it's, it's not. It's, um, it's, it's pretty severe and, and, and pretty disgusting. Yeah, it sounds like the crowd control just gives them, I mean, a cover. I mean, if it's that, if, that's really disturbing that it's as easy as, like you said, playing a video game and decide. I mean, it should be really hard to inflict that onto anybody, but now they can just do it do it at will. Um, You also, you spoke about just daily life for Palestinians, particularly during the pandemic. During the pandemic, we heard a lot about Israel's success with vaccination. Did that success uh, translate to Palestinians being able to be protected from COVID? And I assume the answer is no. And and how does that symbolize the, the broader issue here and how it plays out for Palestinians? Yeah, Israel was um, touted as being, you know, the most successful nation in, in getting all its um, citizens vaccinated. Um, uh, and yet the Palestinians who live under its occupation uh, remain, for the most part, unvaccinated. Um, Palestine, the Palestinian Authority uh, have been getting in sort of small batches here and there of um, vaccines that haven't actually the, the been or at the time hadn't been given full sort of approval from the WHO or, or the European Union, such as um, Sinopharm, which now has, uh, but also Sputnik. Um, and, um, and the common argument that Israel was using is that, you know, we will vaccinate our citizens first before we consider, you know, selling vaccines to our neighbours. But 
again, the, the fact is, is that Israel is an occupying regime and under international law, it has a responsibility to provide for the health care of, uh, of the people it occupies and the creation of the Palestinian Authority and the Oslo Accords do not trump the Geneva Conventions. And this, again, Israel was saying, you know, the PA, the Palestinian Authority, has to provide for its people. I mean, Palestinian Authority officials can't even leave the cities in which they're in without prior coordination with the Israelis. <laughs> you think that they can, they can import right. massive vaccines to, to protect the people they govern. Um, and so, so until now, um, but the, the situation of COVID is, is still a, a major problem. Of course, in Gaza, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's really a, a devastating situation. Um, you know, Palestine people have been commenting on perhaps why there haven't been as many deaths as there might be from COVID um, in Palestine. I mean, we're also luckily a young population. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess because COVID ha- has, you know, the, the severe effects of COVID are, are lesser on, on young people. So that has been, in a way, a saving grace. But it's it's still unknown what uh, how this pandemic is going to uh, play out. I mean, I guess also in many other places in the world, it's not only Palestine that is um, that is still suffering from the the pandemic. Yeah, I think when when people are learning more about this, they have a reaction to this, and what we see is it's been the U.S. line for decades, and it still is, and we're seeing some evolution from our members of Congress. But the classic line is Israel has a right to defend itself. And the reason, obviously, there's a lot of problems with that, but a, a huge one that we've tried to highlight this week is the complete asymmetry um, in sort of political leadership or who Palestinians have speaking for them. So I guess this question has two parts, which is what is your response to that line of thinking that sort of automatic Israel has a right to defend itself? And how does that relate to whatever agency that Palestinians have to influence a government? I mean, I want to point to that 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 really brilliant clip of that, that journalist asking the White House press secretary if Palestinians have a right to defend themselves. And of course, anyone who touts the line that Israel has a right to defend itself can never answer that, 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 that latter question. I think we have to contextualize uh, the occupation and the colonization of Palestine in this. You know, Israel is its own biggest security threat by keeping millions of Palestinians under occupation and, and colonial rule. Um, and if we want to get into sort of legal uh, pedantics, you know, Palestinians are the ones who have the right to use force under international law to, in order to fend off racist and, and colonial regimes. And this is enshrined in international law. And so the question is, why is this colonial system is still existing in 2021 that requires people to resist and use force um, in any way at all? Um, and, and the question of self-defense only comes up when Hamas rockets uh, are fired uh, from Gaza. Uh, and so again, I, I ask the question, what about the Palestinian right to self-defense? What about uh, the Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah who are defending themselves from violent dispossession um, uh, and settler armed settler attacks? No one talks about their right to defend themselves. So it's a, I think it's an incredibly disingenuous uh, question um, uh, and the people who ask it or, or, or use or evoke that right of defense um, they know it they know it's it's an attempt to give Israel 
full impunity uh, and to shield it from from accountability. Yeah, and Americans, just as American citizens and American voters, have influence over this in our votes and how we pressure our elected representatives. So. How is the U.S. contributing to the pain and human rights abuses in Palestine? And what does President Biden need to do in this moment, in your view? Uh, yeah, and that's an important question. Israel has long been an outpost for, for U.S. Uh, imperialist and capitalist interests. And, and in, you know, it provides, and to that end, it provides Israel with financial, military, and, and diplomatic support. And by diplomatic, I mean it bullies other countries into supporting Israel it blocks UN resolutions um, and votes that attempt to hold Israel accountable in terms of financial and military uh, support. You know, we all know that the US gives uh, Israel $3.8 billion in military aid uh, every year. Um, uh, and so ideally, uh, you know, what Biden would have to do would be to end military support to Israel and take a good look at the US's own domestic settler colonial project. But we know that that's not going to happen. And so instead, I think it's important to, to, to think about what others, what comrades and those in solidarity with the Palestinian struggle need to do. And I, I think now more than ever is the time to fight back. Um, I, we need to hold Israel accountable. And one way in which the people can do that outside of political institutions is through boycott, divestment and sanctions. Um, to hurt Israel uh, economically, uh, so that it understands uh, that it can't uh, treat and violate people in this way. Um, but it also requires changing politics wherever you are, because a liberation struggle such as the one in Palestine, for it to be successful and long-lasting, it needs those global shifts. Um, it's a bit cliche to say, but we're not free until we're, we're all free. But I genuinely believe that. You know, it's no good if Palestine liberates itself and it's surrounded by... Uh, uh, imperialist and, 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 and capitalist regimes which continue to, to abuse and violate other people all around the world. So I think even though people feel like they might not be doing much for Palestine, I think working locally on changing politics to, to a more uh, radical uh, and just politics where they are will eventually have a knock-on effect in Palestine. And, and people get frustrated because it's not, these things aren't quick. And it's incredibly frustrating. And But we have to play the long game. If we want a sort of long-lasting, if we want long-lasting justice, we have to play that long game and we have to put that, that time in. And we also, in this moment, we have to keep the mobilisation up and the, the momentum up. Um, we can't let sort of Palestine. When Israel stops bombing Gaza, because it will soon, it seems, in the next few days, and I really hope it does, um, but the media will will forget about the the popular mobilization that's going on, and so we do have to keep that that momentum up. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, what do you wish more people asked you? Is there, you know, you're getting asked so many questions this week. I'm sure a lot of them are repetitive. But is there is there something that you wish people asked you about and and wish you could speak about more? Uh, that's a, that's a good. <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. Like, I feel like there has been, I have been doing a sort of uh, diverse amount of interviews and, and conversations with people that obviously the mainstream media ones have been difficult. I, I tell you what I wish people stop asking me 
I wish they stopped asking me about Hamas. I'm not a Hamas official or representative and I shouldn't be treated as one. And yet Palestinians on mainstream media are always treated as representatives of Hamas when quite clearly we are not. Nor is um, every Jew or every Jewish person living in Israel a, a, a representative of the military or the government. It's a party and yeah. So that's what I wish that they would stop asking me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think, I think it's always nice to ask Palestinians how they're doing and how they are, because this is, this is such a, a devastating time, not only for, for us Palestinians who are in Palestine, but also those who are not, um, to, to be many of whom are, are exiled, not by decision, right? They've been forcibly cut off from Palestine. And so to not be in Palestine in this moment is also um, incredibly difficult. So check in with your Palestinian friends. Yeah, because as, as you mentioned, there's twice, there's just as many around the world as living there right now. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again so much for being so generous with your time. We're so, so appreciative. We hope that you stay safe and are able to find some peace and community really soon. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Because now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click Gift Mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing, up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's Newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com. Newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. Hello, it's Amanda. I am back again. 
I'm Elise Morales. I am here for the first time today. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Caitlin Bird. And this is still the Betisa podcast, where C-SPAN meets the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. I hope you had time to listen to my interview with Dr. Yarhawari. Lots of important insights. How are you guys doing? Okay, Elise, you you traveled. You I took did. a cross national trip. I want to hear all about it. I took uh, I took. My first vaccinated journey uh, traveled, went to visit my parents. They're in Los Angeles right now. So just spent my birthday weekend with them, kept it pretty low key. It was really um, it was interesting because we traveled either on the day or right after the day the CDC had changed the mask guidelines for vaccinated people. And I mean, everyone still had to wear a mask in the airport and all and they the CDC guidelines even say that you should still wear a mask in the airport. But it was very interesting to hear, like on every single flight, they addressed it. They were like, despite the CDC's like new guidelines, even vaccinated people have to keep their mask on. And like, I don't know, it was just really interesting because I I did fly once in the pandemic to see my parents um, last July. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And um, that was one experience. And like we had to fill out those little forms and whatever. This time it seemed very just focused on being like, if you don't wear your mask, we'll kick you off the plane. <laughs> <laughs> like there are so many announcements that are like, we don't care what you think about the masks. If you take it off, we'll take you out. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so this is very interesting. Oh my god! I mean, I, I feel truly bad for any workers who are because of their job they have to enforce these mask guidelines. That sucks, and it sucks for them now that like it's kind of getting individualized and everything. I just really my heart goes out to them because they deal with actually crazy people who want to scream at them and have a political agenda and all this stuff. And it's like, you're at work. You're at work. So yeah, as a former retail employee, <laughs> I like last year, I was being asked, like, go back into the world and like, help people buy expensive hardware. And that they touch. That's the point of it. Oh, my God, the amount of touching people <laughs> want to do. Can I look at this? Uh, why 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 people and then and and then especially like kids oh there's lower transmission in kids and like children are tiny petri dishes anyway so they're they're busy like licking their hands and then touching something you're like what (laughs) (laughs) you know like please stop (laughs) kids aren't wearing that like there would be times that people came in with like masks where they'd cut them open so they could oh my god no (laughs) this is in chelsea manhattan yeah and and they didn't and and here's the thing like most of the time managers didn't want to enforce it like that was during the peak like this was back when like like right now we have vaccinations we have like the fact that we it seems to be lower transmission etc we're still at about several hundred deaths a week so i don't know why we're just so chill about it like yeah, 700 people died yesterday. It's good. Moving on. Let's all yeah. chill and do whatever we want. I'm like, just because we're not India doesn't mean that we're in a good place. Like, what what's happening? Yeah, it's 
It was really interesting, number one, to like just go to another state and see how things are doing. I mean, California seems like it's in a similar spot, though. I think their restaurant capacity might be like less than ours because it's hard to get a table out there. Let me tell you, it's hard to sit down. (laughs) (laughs) The New York State Attorney General's office said yesterday that its investigation into the Trump organization is no longer civil in nature. In fact, Letizia James has widened its probe into the Trump organization to include an examination of potential criminal wrongdoing. Potential. There might be a potential there. We don't have many more details yet, including whether the criminal inquiry is looking into the former president himself or just members of his family. It does relate to whether misstated property values were used to get tax benefits as well as some weird shit to get loans. This originated after uh, Michael Cohen told Congress that Trump had inflated the value of assets to banks to get better loans and insurance while undervaluing them to cut his tax liability. Absolutely seems like something he would do. A judge has also ordered Eric Trump to testify under oath about this, and I've seen on Twitter a lot of theories about how Ivanka will be implicated. And this is on top of the criminal inquiry from the Manhattan DA, which is in the middle of a really wide-ranging fraud investigation. And as we know, they have his tax returns. So if one or both of the prosecutors believe there is enough evidence to charge the former president or any of his associates or his company or his family, that would probably happen by the end of the year. The end of the year is the end of Cy Vance's term, and it also is the natural sort of deadline for Tish James. When I read end of the year, I'm still like, oh, man, so far away. But like, it's almost June, y'all. Like, we could have, will Trump be in prison by the end of the year? (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, it's hard for me to like... Imagine him doing anything but evading justice. Um, but it's and it's also very funny to hear this to be like, we're investigating as to whether or not Trump, Donald Trump is a criminal. And I'm like, maybe. <laughs> maybe he is. Right, right, exactly. It's a potential. He's potentially a criminal. I've seen some evidence that has me concerned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... Um, I mean, like, it's it's nice to see that things are progressing towards something resembling a functional system. Like, yeah, in theory, this should be happening. But like, on the other side, you're kind of like, is it is it going to stick? Like, what's what's going to happen here? I mean, I can't really imagine Ivanka being trucked off. I could imagine Junior and Eric being put in prison for some reason Ivanka just strikes me as like one of those like femme fatales in a James Bond movie who always Mm -hmm. like slips out the back door before you know absolutely happens absolutely the last time we see Ivanka she'll be looking at us like from a window that she jumps out of into a plane and she's just like (laughs) bye-bye and then like flies away and we'll just be like oh my god she was never seen again yeah he's like the evil Carmen Sandiego you know, yes. like, like, you just like, all of a sudden you're like, where is she? Oh my God, we found, oh no. And she'll just like grab something and like wear some like long ass designer coat. Be like, bye. Like, <laughs> on Ta-ta again. And she just like flies away. Bye. She's hanging from a helicopter waving. <laughs> It'll be yeah. right after she like loses a Senate race. And she's like, that's it. I'm mm-hmm. gone forever. Yep. Oh, oh man, race where? Oh, that terrifies me. Like, I feel like Moana. she could run for, well, the thing about Ivanka is I think she just wants to be president. Like, I don't think she has a genuine, not that any of them have a genuine interest in politics, but like, I think Lara Trump just like wants more power. It, I think she said she's not running, but I think Ivanka 
wanted to be president. I mean, I think she still does. She probably hasn't written it off. Yeah, I mean, I think she and her father are the same in that they want to be the most famous person in the world. And at that, at this, at this juncture, that's president of the United States. So that's what they want to be. I just remember that photo with her and like other women leaders or, or whatever. Where, like, yeah, no, yeah. I want to say Ivanka and women who did shit. And then all of the women who'd actually done shit in their lives were like, no. Yeah. No. no. And the entire mood of the photo was like this bitch. Like that yeah. was the entire mood of this fo- that photo. And it was like taken at like the G20 or something. And they, everyone else was like. Nah. Yeah. I'm, well, imagine building a business and then them being like, and you're like Ivanka Trump. Yeah. It's like, no, I'm not. Actually. What do you guys think? What do you guys think that Ivanka Trump's most used emoji is? Oh, damn. I, cause I don't think she uses them. I don't think Ivanka Trump has ever used an emoji. If she does, it like literally is just like a plain smiley face. <laughs> is it an emoticon? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it's an old emoticon. I feel like, yeah, she's just using the yellow smiley faces. I actually think that she only does it for like non, like no like face expressions. It's all like, yeah flowers or like house or something like that like she's it's only to refer to inanimate objects she's not she, there's no emotion wait there. i bet that's exactly what it is she like texts her landscaper just like house flowers grass with like <laughs> with, with, with like the um oh what's the angry, thing angry angry yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the hourglass <laughs> yeah yeah that's definitely how she communicates for sure that's maybe where trump yeah, she texts them style. an alert if she realizes they use the bathroom at her house <laughs> but this is i mean like you said caitlin it's been years and years of like oh is he going to be charged with a crime oh but i mean this is most interesting to me to the extent that it will prevent him from being president again to me well yeah because if he gets charged with a felony right he can't you can't be president if you have a felony right yes you can you can you can yeah there's no limitation other than being born in the united states and 35 years old I was inverting the fact that the only thing when he was president, keeping him from being charged criminally was the fact that he was president, but it doesn't hold the opposite way. Like just because he's charged with a crime doesn't mean he can't be president. That's so interesting. So if you have a felony, you can't vote, but you could be the president. Yeah. You can't vote for yourself. Remember that guy who was like literally running against Barack Obama from prison in West Virginia. (laughs) Right. And Joe Exotic ran as well. So there's nothing. So that's interesting. It's interesting that like if you're a white dude, you lose your voting rights, but you can people will still just be like, that's fine here. You can be you you could be So Donald Trump could lose yeah. his voting rights, but he could still be president. Yeah. I don't know if any of these are felonies. I don't know how white color to vote for himself. Mm hmm. As okay, okay. I just wanted to get all my. Yeah, I just I wanted to get all my facts. Voting to begin with. Let's just be clear. Did he ever actually vote? Questions. <laughs> it does <laughs> not. I mean, voting is framed as like a social obligation. So I highly, I actually would be shocked if he voted. Shocked. Well, remember Ivanka? I think like Ivanka and Eric and Don Jr. weren't able to vote for him in the first New York primary because they forgot to register as Republicans right. and it's not an open primary. Oh, yes, that is so what it was. They, didn't, they did not get to vote for him. <laughs> in the I mean, you can bring up the voter file. That's that's a thing that could happen. Yeah, yeah. There should be a record of all of his votes. But 
I am very eager to see where this is going and thrilled that we might have some answers sooner than later. I think we get one of the boys. Mm -hmm. I think, I think that, uh, very succession style. I think one of the sons is going to have to be sacrificed. Oh, I cannot wait. Just feels like his, his level of public stupidity is just so high that like, he's gonna somewhere already implicated himself. Yeah. Eric's not enough. Eric is not like, like Eric is not enough. Yeah. I'm sorry if we maybe get Eric and somebody else, but Eric alone is not enough. We will not not settle for just Eric. No, no. My (laughs) tolerance is too high. (laughs) (laughs) So for our next topic, the abortion fight that we've sort of been warning about is here. It's on the horizon. This is not a drill. Now, to be clear, abortion access is really restricted around the country, and it's very difficult for certain people in certain parts of the company. Or <laughs> company. I just had a, a leadership training this morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard for people in certain parts of the country already to obtain. For some people, it's like restricted out of existence, and the harder it is for you get an abortion, the less likely they are to do it and to end up not being not ending that pregnancy. And that can make life hard. None of us have kids. We're in our 30s. There's a reason for that. I think, are you 30, Caitlin? Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I crossed the Rubicon years ago. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Skin looking flawless. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. you had to ask. <laughs> so this week, the Supreme Court agreed to hear a case concerning a Mississippi law that seeks to ban most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. This is scary as shit because this is months earlier than the precedent established by Roe and subsequent decisions like Planned Parenthood versus Casey. It has not gone into effect yet because a federal district judge and a panel of U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit said it couldn't be squared with this precedent. They said the law is unconstitutional. This included Trump appointed judges, Reagan appointed judges saying like our hands are tied. Like, of course, we didn't say we're you know pro-abortion, but they're Trump appointed. They just said there are constitutional restrictions here. And these restrictions are basically on what states can do. I think Roe sort of left open the idea, which is irritating to me, that the government has an interest in controlling women's bodies, but states aren't really allowed to get involved there until after the sort of 20 weeks, 24 weeks, depend. different states have different things. So the idea that states, that's the, the thing that's banned right now and is unconstitutional is states interfering with that right because of privacy reasons. We should do a whole another episode on how like, There's way more constitutional things that would probably protect abortion rights better from like the 13th Amendment to the 14th Amendment, but we'll handle that another day. So like I said, Trump judges know this is fucked up, but the Supreme Court took it. And that's alarming. When they accepted the case, the court can basically decide which fundamental question about it it wants to answer. The question it chose for this that they're going to examine is whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. That's scary as shit. So the fact that the court even took this up, it means that they think it's time to revisit this question. And with its six to three majority, I don't feel good about why it felt that way. Do you? No, (laughs) no, I don't. I mean, I think that this is the moment that the anti-choice activists have been working for for 20, 30 years at this point. I mean, this is... A, a strategy that has run deep to pack the court with anti-Roe people and then to bring a Roe challenge all the way to the Supreme Court. So now 
like we've known this was coming all that's left to see is how it shakes out and what's scary when we're talking about supreme court stuff is like we you know you can go protest outside of the supreme court you can call your senator and yeah but the supreme court's like it's the court they're gonna do what they're gonna do and they're gonna make their decision and we have to live with whatever that choice is oh god and i think well the other thing that this is where i start getting frustrated at uh discussions that democrats have um, not just elected Democrats, but voting Democrats. Because um, I know that a lot of the organizing on the ground and a lot of other stuff, you know, like we went through the 2016 campaign and we're frequently told over and over again, like the Supreme Court is on the ballot. Like you have to elect Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And people were like, no, you're blackmailing us. No, like, and there's all this focus on the presidency. All this focus on the presidency is the core of like everything that Democrats need to get. And it's like, you guys, the courts the, are, are completely fucked right now. Like, compl- we're not just talking about the Supreme Court. We're talking about all the entire judiciary is fucked because of that decision. The entire, all of our state houses, Democrats barely organize at the state level. There's no emphasis on any kind of state or local organizing. So we end up with, like, fake Democrats like Andrew Yang and, you know, running big for, for big metropolitan areas and no real policy pushing back at the state level unless you're magically in a state that has uh, a complete uh, democratic control. So New York and California, congratulations. Uh, Maybe Oregon and Washington, but even they have very heavy rural spaces that that counterbalance them. You don't have, uh, and the last triumvirate might be Hawaii. You're like, come on, that's not enough people. Like, you know, like there's a certain amount of just, complete disregard for like, okay, well, state houses are going to be the ones who are going to be make if Roe goes down, it's not going to be national, it's going to be state level. And the fact that there are no Democrats really able to push back against what's going to happen at the state level, that's a strategic failure from all of us who vote and organize as Democrats, because that should not be happening. There should be robust Democratic parties in all 50 states to help protect women, to help offer and defend their rights, to avoid this exact thing. Like, yeah, maybe Mississippi is not gonna be a place where women have rights. Like, (laughs) still don't believe, they took them uh, over, didn't they just, just agree to put the, to, uh, to ratify the 13th amendment? Didn't that happen? Like, isn't there like a high schooler who's like older than Mississippi's ratification of that? It was definitely what it was one of the states where so many people are leaving that they like lost a seat. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's just like it's just really it's really scary. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is like, yeah, once this happens to your point, Caitlin, it's not like um, like once Roe gets overturned, abortion is just illegal across the board. But a lot of these states have these like, I think they're called trigger laws that are like basically already written and even on the books that like can't they can't be enforced now because they they are not uh, they disagree with federal law. But once that's no longer the case, abortion's illegal in that state like that. Yeah. So if Roe were overturned or something to that effect happened with this decision, abortion would probably become illegal immediately in 22 states. 41% of us 
uh, and child in childbearing age would have our nearest abortion clinic close. And the average distance that you'd have to drive would be 280 miles. It is already 250 miles. So, right. This is like why all the girls, you know, were crying when Kavanaugh was appointed. I mean, before we found out about Christine Blasey Ford, then we were crying for a bunch of reasons, but like it, this is what we were warning about in, in 2018. We're about a year away from this decision. I know that's probably what people are thinking. Uh, the term begins in October and we usually get the biggest decisions uh, around June. And my question is always, so the state level, like you said, these, these laws are going through the state legislatures and Democrats don't watch state. Anybody can get elected to a state legislature. Like it's crazy. It's and wild. And they do. And they do. That's the important thing. Like, wherever you see, like, Marjorie Taylor Greens and all the other stuff, like, you're like, oh, wow, who, how could that person get elected to Congress? Bitch, check your current state senator. Check your current rep. The wildness, okay? You can get, you can get amazing statements out of state senators from these places where they're like, I think a baby comes fully formed inside the woman and then she's just the carrier. You're like, what the and like yeah normal this is like what gets said i swear to god just go check just i'm gonna pick a state at random missouri Mm -hmm. go check what gets said in the general assembly in missouri oh except but do you know who's running for senate in missouri did you see this today at least told me um the the guy mccluskey the guy who pointed a gun at black lives matter protesters and was disbarred and then spoke at the rnc he's running uh to be the other senator for missouri and then the two senators would be him and josh hawley that's fun but then there's the other former governor from missouri who's also running who's like a complete fuck up missouri missouri todd aiken has been (laughs) salvaged i guess (laughs) See, like, this is what I mean. Todd Aiken, where did he come from? Mm-hmm. This is why local politics matters, people, because these kooky people, they end up in on your school board, then they're determining what kids learn. <laughs> they yeah. end up in your, as your assembly or your, your whatever, the state house representative. Everyone's got different systems. In New York, it's the assembly and the Senate, mm-hmm. um, the bicameral system. And then, you know, then they're, they're state senators who are just out here wiling, saying whatever. It doesn't need to be factual. There's like only 17 people who vote. <laughs> like, that's just their extended family. Like, they just win. Exactly. No one votes at the local level. So they're like, okay. And then you see the crazy statements and they're like, how is this person a congressman? And you're like, well, that's the pipeline. The pipeline is local to state to federal. And you weren't paying attention when it was local and state. So now you've got people who believe in Jewish space lasers. That's mm-hmm. right. Exactly. And so to close this conversation out for today, the mechanism by which abortion is legal in the United States is through our constitution. But I'm always asking myself, like, why does it have to be this way? 70% of Americans support Roe versus Wade. Yet whenever elections come, I mean, I didn't see that much this round, but it's pretty typical for like establishment Democrats to ask women to shut up about abortion because there's this idea that we can get some of those one issue pro-life voters to come to our side, which is also true. But this is where we end up like we end up in a place where our Supreme Court, like Lee says, there's nothing we can do. But what I don't understand is that if 70 percent of Americans support Roe versus Wade, there are there is legislation in Congress like ready to go that my understanding would enshrine abortion rights. So I don't understand why ahead of the next round, we're not going to be like, you're out if you're not going to pass this 
abortion law. You're out. Well, yeah. I mean, it's crazy because I feel like abortion is always also used as the example of like, you know, we have to let we have to let people with different views into the party. And it's always like we should let um, anti-abortion people into the party. It's like we're women have been being asked to compromise on this issue and to keep quiet on this issue for a really long time. And now our rights are being decided by a group of, you know, nine people who some of whom are were legitimately installed, some of whom were not. And a third court is illegitimate in my personal view. And yeah. Yeah. And uh, I know this, this didn't get mentioned as much, but like Brett Kavanaugh is just a straight up conspiracy theorist. He does not believe he's, he's just unmoored from reality in multiple ways based off of his personal feelings. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I've got very strong feelings about lots of things, but if the evidence doesn't support it, I don't believe it anyway. Which uh, it kind of explains where the Republican Party is right now, you know, yeah. and that's why people don't organize around it. Like if we're mm-hmm. asking, hey, 70 percent of people support Roe, they support women being able to make this decision, but they also don't want to vote on it. Like generally people aren't voting on it. They're not saying like, oh, this is so in danger. But like that's the problem with a lot of liberal stuff I find is that we just generally tend to be like, well, live and let live. Like, it's not my life, blah, 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 yeah. blah. And, and it's not until it's like actively threatened. They're like, oh my God, I should vote on this. It's like, you're too late. Like the s- systemically you've waited too long to activate people around this issue. And now it's an existential crisis. You know, another thing that could have helped would be passing the ERA, a thing that did not happen and having that added to the constitution, which would have then forestalled the ability of the justices to say, oh, well, based off of this, like, sorry, there's an equal rights exactly. amendment. So you can't actually argue that women have, you get con- to control women's reproductive choices any differently than you control men's. Unless you're going to require men to get a vasectomy and then have it reversed when they get a, offer a legitimate marriage certificate, I don't see a good reason why I should have you guys up my snatch. Yep. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Yeah. I mean, it's just the, the classic women are not free if we can't control our reproductive health. We can't. And, and, and if this happens, people as well, yeah. you know, like yes. this is going to be even more catastrophic for the further, the further you are from that like centerpiece, which I would say is like white women are probably like the most protected class. And then it starts uh, white, able-bodied white women. And then it starts like moving way further out. And by the time you get to trans people, it is a nightmare space what mm-hmm. row going down is going to do so like it's a spectrum but it gets a lot worse the further away that you are and it's going to be really bad at the place that's most protected so just imagine how much worse it's going to be right and we're already getting a sign of, of the, the dark past that this could go down in certain states that is our show thank you guys until the end of democracy i'm amanda duberman i'm elise morales i'm caitlin bird and this is the better sub podcast the Betches Sup Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Sean Kilby. Editing by Jorge Morales-Pico. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails to suppod at Betches.com. Betches.